Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 66, From Celebrations to the Misery of War. Last episode, we recounted how Nicholas II was steering his country to war with Germany and Austria-Hungary over Serbia. His almost hand-picked conservative Duma followed the Tsar's lead without question. Now, before we plunge Russia into World War I, we need to understand why the country was caught up in such a patriotic fervor, given the revolutionary storms circling the government. Starting with 1896, there were a number of important anniversaries commemorating major accomplishments in Russian history, especially by Peter the Great. These anniversaries were used deftly by the Romanov-led government to stir up feelings of Russian pride throughout the nation. While Nicholas preferred the Byzantine-like period of Alexis I, he could not ignore all things Peter I had accomplished 200 years before. 1896 marked the bicentennial of the founding of the Russian Navy, but the first major celebration was in 1903 with the 200th anniversary of the founding of St. Petersburg. Nicholas, though, was no fan of the city, as he much preferred the old capital of Moscow but he had little choice. To sum up the royal family's feelings, you just need to hear the quote from Empress Alexandra. Quote, Petersburg is a rotten town, not an atom Russian. The celebration was somewhat odd, as the Tsar and his wife wore clothes to one of the balls in the style of Alexis I and not Peter's. The picture, which you can see at russianrulers.podhoster.com website, is of Nicholas II wearing the clothes of his ancestor. It is a widely circulated picture, which was used as an example of how the Tsar was so out of touch with the modern world. In defense of Nicholas, though, it was the only time he ever wore the clothes of Alexis. But as often happened to this Tsar, a simple, innocent act was turned against him. 1909 marked the bicentennial of the Battle of Poltava, where Peter defeated Charles IX, saving his country from foreign invasion of the Swedes. Nicholas bathed in the glory, visiting peasants and members of Peter's Priobrazhenskoy regiment, which had actually had three direct descendants of men who served under Peter that day attending. The other attendees at the ceremony held on June 27, 1909, cheered the Tsar, giving him a deeper belief that the Russian people were still firmly on his side, and they would stand up for him against the alien rebels. 1912 marked the 100th anniversary of Alexander I's triumph over the invading forces of Napoleon. In September of that year, the Tsar and his wife attended a celebratory ceremony in Borodino, the place where the bloodiest battle of the war was fought. Absent were members of the Duma who were not invited and were mightily offended. Nicholas viewed them as unnecessary. The anti-Nicholas fervor grew even among his subordinates. The following year was by far the most important to Nicholas II, as 1913 marked the 300th anniversary of the ascension of Mikhail Romanov as the Tsar of Russia. For this, Nicholas pulled off all the stops. On February 21st, he published a manifesto, of which I will read the opening narrative. By the common efforts of the crown-bearers, 
our predecessors on the Russian throne. And all loyal sons of Russia, the Russian state was created and strengthened. Despite many trials, the Russian people remained firm in their orthodox faith. With self-sacrificing loyalty to their sovereigns, they overcame misfortunes. The Russian Empire became one of the foremost powers in the world. Observing the three centuries that have passed, we see in all of them the highest feats of valor of the best sons of Russia, who spared neither effort nor possessions, not life itself, for Russia's sake. Many of the church elders were caught up in the celebrations, as were many loyalists that surrounded the Tsar and his family, giving them a sense that all would be okay if only the accursed foreigners and intelligentsia would stop their negativity. But the real mood of the people was that of doom and gloom. Many felt that Russia was headed towards a time some 300 years ago, but not with the ascension of the Romanovs, but the plunge into the time of troubles. During the celebrations and parties held in both St. Petersburg and Moscow, members of the Duma were again, for the large part, excluded. What is so striking is that the Duma was pretty much on the Tsar's side when it came to policy, but he snubbed them nonetheless. It was just another example of the behavior of this Tsar that was so detrimental to his image. A tour ensued through part of Russia visiting ancient cities like Vladimir, Suzdal, Nizhny Novgorod, Yaroslav, Rostov, and Kostroma. It was carefully orchestrated so that Tsar and his family would only see the good parts of the countryside and none of the bad. It's here we have to take another sidestep and talk a bit about the heir to the throne, the sickly Alexis. The Tsarevich, whose hemophilia was a well-guarded secret, was known to be ill, but with the official issue being a leg problem which is why he was always carried in public. His fragile nature was, as Lindsay Hughes puts in her book, The Romanovs, quote, Alexis's sickly presence was potentially a poignant reminder of the dynasty's fragility. It is this fragility that gave Rasputin his place with the imperial family. He was considered a holy man and healer who could keep Tsarevich Alexis alive. The effect of the, on the family was devastating, it is said that Nicholas, upon learning that his son had hemophilia, began to distance himself from the outside world and drew closer to his family. Somehow, Rasputin did have a remarkable effect on Alexis, as he was able to stop his pain almost immediately, once even doing it over the phone. Because of this, any attempt by members of the court of the Tsar to discredit Rasputin was dismissed outright, with the people doing the complaining oftentimes losing their jobs, even though they provided irrefutable proof of his debauched behavior. Serena Alexander was, was the supposed holy man's biggest supporter, which caused her to be much disliked. Even though most of the Russian people felt that their Tsar was incompetent, all of the celebrations of the previous years gave way to a fervent national pride. So when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and the Serbians were blamed, Russia was ready for war. The people were not going to stand for a fellow Orthodox nation to be attacked. So when Austria-Hungary declared war on the small nation, Russia began to arm itself. On August 1st, 1914, Germany declared war on Russia, with Austria following quick, quickly thereafter. Soon, 
all of Europe was gearing for war. The Duma, for its part, voted to endorse the war effort unanimously. But the problem was, despite all of the industrialization going on over the past decades, Russia really was totally unprepared for war. They were to send millions of men into battle without rifles. Those that did didn't have enough bullets to use the rifle as anything but a club. At times, men had to wait for a comrade to die so they could get a weapon. At first, the Russian army made headway by marching into East Prussia and Galicia, but they were quickly turned back. To show you how bad things were, in a three-day period from August 26th through the 29th of 1914, 125,000 Russian soldiers were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner near the town of Tannenberg. Tsar Nicholas then called on his countrymen to join in on the noble war, and eventually somewhat between 14 to 15 million signed up. But that number, as many historians have recounted, was terribly deceiving. Russia couldn't even muster enough uniforms, let alone arms, to put an effective army into the field. To top it off initially, Tsar Nicholas II appointed his cousin, Grand Duke Nicholas, commander-in-chief. When he heard of the appointment, the Grand Duke was said to have cried in terror. Within a year, the Tsar took over as commander-in-chief, as the Austrians and Germans were decimating the Russian army. As Duffy and Ricci put in their book, Tsars, quote, incompetent but decisive leadership was replaced by incompetent and indecisive leadership. Many of his closest ministers told Nicholas not to take command, as they warned him that he would now be blamed if the war continued to go bad, and that he was risking his very throne. Even the devilish Rasputin told the Tsar not to do it, as everyone knew that Nicholas was no military man. The toll on the poor Russian soldier was enormous. By the end of Russia's participation in the war in 1917, there were over eight and a half million casualties, more than 50% of those who went to war. On top of that, many of the soldiers were peasants from the agricultural fields of Russia, which caused a massive disruption of food production and food shortages in many of the cities. As the war progressed, another problem came about, and that was mass desertions. When the men came back home, they told horror stories, which further weakened the autocratic rule of Nicholas. With the Tsar running the military operations and away from St. Petersburg, he left the running of the government to his wife, Alexandra, already hated because of her supposed German heritage, which was kind of a little misleading, as she was really the granddaughter of Queen Victoria of Great Britain. She further infuriated those around the government by allowing Rasputin to influence some of her decisions. The appointment of ministers, which should have been the decision of Nicholas's alone, was guided by Rasputin instead. Men of quality and intelligence were now replaced by old, incompetent buffoons. Living standards throughout Russia continued to decline in 1916 as the war went from bad to worse. The desertions numbered in the tens of thousands each month. General dissatisfaction grew to anger, strikes, and confrontations with the police. The Romanov family as a whole were increasingly hated and thought to be a major reason why Russia was getting beaten up in the war. 
Then came the Brato-Lubov affair, where Grand Duke Mikhail Alexandrovich, the Tsar's uncle, was duped by a man who claimed to have a devastating flamethrower, which never existed. He funded the man, despite warnings that the man was a con artist. Late in 1916, the Duma was fully enraged and was denouncing Rasputin, as well as all of the ministers he supposedly had a hand in appointing. The fury was so intense that Tsar was forced to dismiss Boris Sturmer, who was the president of the Council of Ministers and Minister of Foreign Affairs. The incompetent man was a protege of Rasputin and universally hated. On December 16, 1916, a group of nobles, led by Prince Felix Yusupov and the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich and the right-wing politician Vladimir Pursikevich apparently lured Rasputin to Yusupov's Moika Palace, where they attempted to poison Rasputin with cyanide. When that failed, they shot, strangled, and stabbed him, and threw him into the icy Neva River. Recent evidence, though, has come to the surface that this story is not the whole truth. But I'll cover that in my Rasputin episode, which I haven't decided on its timing yet. But... Alexandra the Tsarina was crushed and even kept his blood-soaked shirt as a memento. Next time, we'll cover all the reasons for the end of the Romanov dynasty and Nicholas II's abdication. And then from there, we're going to go into the beginning of the Russian Revolution of 1917. And now from a, for a reading from Russian history. And this one, interestingly enough, uh, when my father passed away, going through all the books that he had, and I came upon one that just recently I looked into, and it's called Memories of the Russian Court by Anna Virobova. Anna Virobova was an interesting person, as she was the confidant and good friend and basically best friend of Empress uh, Alexandra, and she was with her for many, many years. So what I'm going to read is just a little part of it. This book was written in 1923, and she uh, had a harrowing escape from uh, the Soviets. They were searching for her and were obviously going to murder her as being part of the Romanovs. Uh, but she was able to escape with help of some friends and made it to, to Helsinki in Finland. Quote, Life at court was by no means serious. In fact, it was at that time very gay. At 17, I was presented first to the Empress Dowager, who lived in a palace in Peterhof known as The Cottage. Extremely shy at first, I soon accustomed myself to the many brilliant court functions to which my mother chaperoned my sister and myself. We danced that first winter, I remember, at no less than 22 balls, beside attending many receptions, teas, and dinners. Perhaps it was partly the fatigue of all of this social dissipation which made so serious the illness which, in the ensuing summer, I was stricken. Typhus, that scourge of Russia, struck down at the same time my brother Serge and myself. My brother's illness ran a normal course, and he made a rapid recovery. But for three months I lay at death's door. After the fever succeeded many complications inflammation of the lungs and kidneys, an infection of the brain, whereby I lost both speech and hearing. In the midst of my suffering, I had a vivid dream in which the saintly Father John of Kronstadt 
appeared to me and told me to have courage and that all would finally be well. This Father John of Kronstadt, whom all true Russians revere as a saint, I remembered as having thrice been at our house in my early childhood. The gentle majesty of his presence, the beauty of his benign countenance, had so deeply impressed me that now, in my desperate illness, it seemed to me that he, more than the skilled physicians and the devoted sisters who attended me, had power of help and healing. In some way, I managed to convey to my parents that I wanted Father John, and they immediately telegraphed, begging him to come. It was some days before the message reached him, as he was away from home on a mission, but as soon as he received word of our need, he hastened to Peteroff. As in a vision, I sensed his coming long before he reached the house, and when he came, I greeted him, without astonishment, with a feeble movement of my hand. Father John knelt down beside my bed, praying quietly, a corner of his long stole laid over my burning head. At length he rose, took a glass of holy water, and to the consternation of the nurses, sprinkled it freely over me, and bade me sleep. Almost instantly I fell into a deep sleep, and I awoke the next day. I was so much better that all could see I was on the road to recovery. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please go to iTunes and give me a favorable rating if you like what you hear, as it's going to help me move up the podcast rankings. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, which has become really a very lively place. I want to thank everybody for all your comments and suggestions and questions you've asked. So, as always, Tasvidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.